Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is a multi-award winning comedy and screenwriter who's worked on some of the most iconic shows on television. Her writing credits include Veep, Succession, Avenue 5 and Malcolm Tucker's foul-mouthed tirades and the thick of it. She's also worked alongside numerous comedy greats, including Armando Iannucci, Lenny Henry and Joe Brand. Her memoir, My Mess is a Bit of a Life, Adventures in Anxiety, was published to critical acclaim and is now out in paperback. It details her unconventional route to writing via brief stints on a teacher training course and the deli counter at Harrods and her moving experiences of parenting non-neurotypical children while struggling with her own anxiety. Georgia Pritchett, welcome to Meet the Writers. Thank you so much. Lovely to be here. As I was telling you, we've been fangirling all morning because we just love your work so much. And we love, love, love this book. My mess is a bit of a life. So do many others. Miranda Hart has said funny, moving, insightful and vulnerable. And that really is the word that comes to mind. Vulnerable. You've opened yourself up so much. Surprisingly so, I thought, for somebody with clearly anxiety issues. I know. What was I thinking? It was a terrible lapse in judgment, having spent my whole career putting words in other people's mouths uh, by writing scripts. I loved the anonymity of that and just kind of peeping out at the world through the lines I wrote. So I can't quite think what on earth led me to write something so personal and so direct. It's horrifying. Well, we've stocked up on tissues here in case you have a nosebleed. Because oh, yes. that's one of the things that comes through the book. So every moment of anxiety is, is accompanied by gushing of blood. Um, so we're really, really hoping that doesn't happen today. Me too, yes. <laughs> I'd like to talk about your family first, uh, because your grandfather and both your parents are writers. Yes, that's right, yeah. I think I was very lucky in that I came from a family where writing was considered... A job. Uh, You know, lots of people don't have that luxury. And I think also, you know, writing's the only thing I've never been confused about. And I knew I wanted to be a writer from even before I could write. So, you know, at the age of three, I was speaking stories into a, a tape recorder, which were entirely about budgies who'd fallen out of their nests and couldn't find their way home, which is a niche genre um, and <laughs> hasn't taken off in the way I'd hoped. But yes, it was all all the budgie. And someone said to me recently, writers just continue to write the same story over and over again in different forms. And I did think to myself, well, actually, maybe all the characters on Succession are budgies who've fallen out of their nest and can't find their way home. Maybe there is some truth. So, yes, writing is the kind of one constant in my life which has kept me sane-ish. Well, your grandfather was was the writer V.S. Pritchett, your mother, uh, Josephine Hayworth, an author, your father, Oliver, who you call the patriarchy in your (laughs) book. Your mother is, I think, the witch. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) A journalist and and a columnist. But clearly you were a fantastically anxious child, as as possibly those budgies might tell us. (laughs) And in fact, there's one story about your father picking you up from nursery school and not being able to remember your name. No wonder you felt you'd fallen out of the nest. (laughs) Yes, he... uh arrived and couldn't remember my name and so described me as a small with curly hair and the teacher said you're going to have to narrow that down a bit <laughs> and in the end the best he could come up with was Emily's friend so uh, <laughs> I always worried that perhaps I was a different friend of Emily's and no one had noticed but um, 
Yes, it was it was a very happy but sort of chaotic childhood and um writing was definitely something that helped me express those feelings of anxiety. And of course a fantastic imagination. You write about the tooth fairy and it's in parts hilarious but also really quite traumatic. <laughs> when I lost my first tooth, which was a big shock, my mum tried to sort of reassure me and and say, you know, explain about the tooth fairy and the idea of some creature visiting me in the dead of night and giving me money in exchange for body parts was so horrifying to me. And uh, as I quite often sort of ended up with my head under the pillow, I was worried that the fairy would take my whole head away and and sort of had questions about the lifting capacity of a fairy, um, (laughs) which my mother couldn't answer. So yes, there, there there were worries at every turn. And worries throughout school, and we we really hear a lot about your upbringing and your own body image. You describe yourself as a ferret. (laughs) I have to say I disagree. (laughs) And then these sort of successions of of unsuccessful, really, forays into the world of work. Uh, You just weren't cut out to be a teacher. (laughs) I really wasn't, no. I Yes, I have a a problem with exuding authority or, or exuding anything, really. And when I was on my teaching practice, the uh, the children mistook me for one of the one of the pupils. So I clearly wasn't uh, having the desired effect. So I stopped that pretty quickly. And Harrods? Yeah, I mean, I was, you know, starting out earning very little money. My main source of income was a, a faulty vending machine near where I was staying with my brother. And there was a vending machine that when you put 50p in for a Mars bar, you got a Mars bar and a pound. So that was my main source of food and income for some time. So so to uh, supplement my earnings at the vending machine and my writing career, I, I worked at Harrods on the deli counter. Now, you say in the book, I knew I couldn't be a writer like my grandfather because I hate describing things and I don't have adjectives. I knew I couldn't be a journalist like my dad because I don't care care about facts and it was my mum who said well you've got an ear for dialogue so how did that launch you into the world of television well I think yes my mum pointed out she's good at spotting faults that I had a very irritating habit of learning huge chunks of sort of comedy sketches and comedy stand-up and sitcoms and pointed out that maybe dialogue was my thing and so Many years ago, I don't know if you remember, there was a a show on Radio 4 called Weekending where you could, anyone could submit material and you could turn up to the BBC and most people there were homeless people trying to keep warm, but there are a few people like me who had big dreams beyond a free biscuit and... Yes, you could submit jokes and you got £8 a joke and uh, some weeks I got two jokes on so I was making out like a bandit and uh, yeah, that sort of started me off on sort of sketch shows and from there I moved on to things like Spitting Image and Smith and Jones and Joe Brown and Rory Bremner and then on to kind of stand-up and sitcom. And you also describe yourself as doing jobs that the lowest of the low, forthrighted from the left, on things like Spice Girls, the yes. movie. Now you ended up being the sort of United Nations of the Spice Girls. I did, yes. I turned up to filming one day and filming had ground to a halt because they had fallen out. And we were told that the source of this enormous fallout was that Scary Spice, Mel B, 
would ask the others to go to the loo with her and they wouldn't wait for her. Then she wouldn't wait for them afterwards, which is, as any woman knows, classic. I mean, you know... Bad etiquette. That is not good (laughs) loo etiquette. So, yes, we we sort of had to form an intervention and and, um, go and I tried to uh, build bridges, as you say, in a very sort of United Nations way and... If nothing else, my legacy is that the Spice Girls perhaps stayed together for a day longer than they would have done without me. I mean, one of the reasons, though, you were asked to intervene was because you're a woman. Yeah. And this whole issue of gender runs through the book from really your very early years at school right up to the present day, where actually it's been very, very difficult. And you articulate this fantastically well. The sexism that ran all the way through to the current British television industry, do you think it's just as bad now? I think, I mean, when I started, I was the only woman in the room and I remember thinking, oh, that's odd, but, you know, it'll change soon. And it was 25 years before I I got to be in a room with another woman. And, you know, for all of that time, it was all I knew and I loved the male writers I worked with, so I didn't know any different. But when I finally was in a room with another, with two whole entire women, that means there were three of us. Um, it was so extraordinary and so validating and exciting. It really took me by surprise to sit opposite someone who kind of looks a bit like you, dresses a bit like you, has similar life experiences, was thrilling and made me realise, oh, this is what it's like to be a white man every minute of every day when you walk in any room or turn on the telly. And it also made me realise how hard it is for people who still never see themselves reflected, whether on screen or in positions of authority, because it is an incredibly powerful experience. Mm. It was, yeah, wonderful. Uh, Let's talk about some of your work. You mentioned, of course, Spitting Image, very male team, very cutting-edge politics, though, and something that was very new to our screens at the time. Yeah, I mean, I look back on it now sort of longingly because I remember writing endless sketches about how boring John Major was eating his peas and and if only politics was as boring now I mean my goodness we were we were searching for things to write about and um, now it's you know so extraordinary the things that are happening in this country and in the world and in fact You know, when I was writing Veep sort of many years later, uh, which was in a way an American version of the thick of it about American politics and this American president, we had a a fictional president who was female. We now realise that's ridiculous. But she, she was venal and ruthless and lying and corrupt and a monster but she had a sense of shame. And when Trump got in overnight, that suddenly seemed very twee and old-fashioned. So, yeah, so it's not the worst thing Trump did, but he put an end to, to Veep because we just, we couldn't keep up with, with the absolutely extraordinary things that were happening in, in the world. And, and that's sort of something that, that has happened throughout my career, which I kind of love and am always sort of both dispirited and excited by is that life is a, a much better joke writer than I could ever be. So <laughs> so I was in the States for the the recent the most recent election when Rudy Giuliani held a press conference outside Four Seasons Total Landscaping. And I remember sort of clapping in my hotel room because 
I just thought, well, that's I would never have thought of that, and that makes the sort of four-year setup line worth it. It was such a fantastic punchline, and and you just have to sort of take your hat off to life. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, when you look at the thick of it, for yeah. instance, and we are living that right yes. now. Yeah. Boris Johnson is in difficult, difficult lemon, difficult times. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, I mean, but extraordinary. And writing for Malcolm Tucker must have been such fun with that stream of profanities. Yes, yes. When Armando asked me to write for the show, I remember thinking very primly, oh, I don't think I know enough swear words. And then (laughs) on day one, I had to write a speech for Malcolm Tucker and it all came pouring out of me, this torrent of filth. It was sort of (laughs) astonishing and disgusting. And, um, yeah, I felt very zen at the end of the day. And... (laughs) But at the time, I had very young children and my sons used to draw pictures on the back of the scripts that I'd finished with. And I remember my son drew a rainbow for his teacher and then we we took it in and she sort of said, how lovely, and then realised there was writing on the back and turned it over and um, (laughs) saw this eye-watering speech of just incredible filth. And, I, yeah, I don't think a Montessori teacher has ever experienced such a thing before. She she visibly uh, was shaken and I had to suggest she didn't stick it to the window. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you've worked with some incredible people. I mean, you tell stories of exchanging scripts for money in a lay-by <laughs> with Ronnie Corbett. Uh, George Michael, you did an animation video yes, with him. Yeah. Now, of course, you'd fancied yourself as Mrs. Michael for a while. Yes, George and Georgia Michael. That was my dream for so many reasons that couldn't (laughs) be the case as I was to discover. But yeah, he was fantastic and Ronnie was, you know, as you say, we had this very gangster moment where we rolled up in our cars and exchanged brown envelopes. So yeah, it's been been a a great experience and uh, yeah, and I've met some some of my heroes, which has been very exciting. Yeah. Now, one of the reasons, of course, George and Georgia Michael couldn't have worked was that that both of you prefer to be in same-sex relationships. Yes. yes. Was that difficult uh, at that time, coming out in the society we have now and to your family? Yes, it was. I mean, being the only woman and then... I mean, there were so many things. The only person who hadn't been to Oxford or Cambridge, the only woman and also the only gay person, was tricky. And... It was, I mean, you say coming out, I'd like to think I had some sort of very triumphant and eloquent speech that I made. But as I mentioned in the book, when I did tell my parents, I I just sort of mumbled, I'm seeing someone and it might not be a man. <laughs> so I don't know if that qualifies as, as coming out. But I mean, you, you, you describe it, you say feelings are like pickled eggs, best left unopened no matter how drunk you are. And you never really discuss it. No, that's right. I think, you know, lots of us who come from sort of British middle class families, we don't discuss things openly. There's a lot of subtext, but not much text. So, yeah, didn't discuss it openly. And, yeah, I mean, I'm excited now by what's happening in the world with, you know, the whole sort of... I'm so interested in words and and labels are words. And obviously, I'm quite a private person and suddenly labels have become a big thing in my life in that, you know, I had the label gay and my sons have labels. Everything suddenly has labels. I'd rather in some ways not be labelled. But I'm really excited by how young people are finding new words to describe themselves and sort of either rejecting labels or 
or making up ones that they feel comfortable with, mm. uh, which I think is fantastic. Let's talk about your sons, because it was actually a really hugely difficult journey to give birth to, to these two boys. Yeah. Uh, you had a really trying time, several miscarriages, and all of this accompanied by huge anxiety and the illness of your partner, which thankfully was misdiagnosed. Yes, yes, it was... Um, you know, it's very difficult becoming pregnant, I've discovered, for some people. And that was a journey. And again, going back to, to labels, you know, you, you find yourself, if you can't get pregnant easily, at the infertility clinic. And you sort of think, hang on a minute, give me a chance. Don't label me as that so quickly. <laughs> but I did, after many years of trying and some uh, failed pregnancies, I did have two children, which was absolutely miraculous and fantastic during which time my partner became ill and was told that she had a few months to live. And um, that turned out not to be the case. So, yeah, she's still here. I'm suing. They promised me. <laughs> uh, but a huge anxiety for you. And you describe those, those feelings in the way that you write this. And the structure of the book is so clever because you start off with you speaking to your therapist. And, of course, you end there, too. Yeah. And everything in between is, is basically what the therapist told you to do. But really scary symptoms, not being able to hear. You feel your vision is going. And it's very, very difficult. And at one point, it seems that you're possibly contemplating ending your own life. Yes, I think... You know, as a comedy, well, as any person, but particularly as a comedy writer, it's easy to feel it's literally your job to be happy and you can't really admit to anything else. And I think as someone sort of emotionally unevolved who just kept trying to push away any difficult feelings, when I started to struggle, which sort of ironically, as you see in the book, is kind of when my career sort of takes a turn for the better. I should just put in here, you've won so many awards. <laughs> yeah, I think I I very stupidly, perhaps, just kept thinking there was some physical problem. So I, I chart all the different things I tried, sort of whether it's homeopathy or healers or thinking I had a hearing problem or, a, you know, needed glasses or whatever it was. It took me a long time to think, actually, maybe this is not a physical thing. Maybe it's an emotional or a mental thing. And then when I went to see a therapist, that was the other extraordinary thing because I love words, I'm all about the words, and suddenly to find myself in a situation where I couldn't find words to express what was happening was very scary. Mm. People are going to have to read the book to find out about you refusing to eat tiny ground-up spiders uh, <laughs> yes. and so many other wonderful stories like that. You talk about moments of happiness, though, and there there have been many. Oh, yeah, lots. Uh, and one of them was at your son, who you call Speck in the book, yes. uh, his teacher's wedding. Oh, yes, yes. So my older son, who was absolutely massive, so we called him the Speck, he... He didn't speak until he was six or seven. Uh, he was diagnosed with autism and we really struggled for, for many years. It was very challenging for him and very difficult for him and for us. But we had this fantastic woman who came to our house called Chloe who um, helped him learn to speak and she was just absolutely incredible. And then she got married and... As anyone who knows anyone with autism will know, that's a, a sort of big 
event like that is very difficult and we weren't at all sure that he would manage to go. So we tried all the sort of things. She sent photos of the venue and um, the table plans and we sort of did a little dress rehearsal of going there and anyway he, I was so proud of him he managed to to um, be there through the ceremony and then I thought we'll go home and he said no he wanted to stay and so we're in this big marquee with you know 250 people it was very noisy and they started giving speeches and he said he wanted to give a speech and I said no no you know that's just for the, the Chloe's dad and her husband and he was saying no no I give speech and I thought, he doesn't really understand what he's saying. So being an annoying mother, I was saying, give me, give a speech to me later. And he said, no, pretend this sausage is a microphone and give a speech to me now. No. So in the end, I went and said to Chloe, look, he says he wants to give a speech. I don't know if he really knows what that means. So she was thrilled and he was sort of lifted onto the stage and handed this microphone. And there was this very, very long pause when I thought, oh, no. And then he started singing Pure Imagination from Charlie and the Chocolate. He said, I want, yes, I want to thank Chloe. And he sang her Pure Imagination, which I didn't know he knew. And uh, it was, yeah, it was an incredibly moving moment. There were 250 people sobbing. And, uh, yeah, it was it was absolutely joyful. Now, your children didn't believe you had a job at all. <laughs> you tell them you were going off to work in America and uh, that yeah. they're sort of a bit nonplussed by that. Yes, I mean, that's the great thing about being a writer is you're generally at home in your pyjamas eating biscuits. So it was a shock to me when I had to go to the States for filming, you know, just for, I used to go a week at a time. So when I explained to them that I had to go away for work, they, they sort of said, but you haven't got a job. And I, I said, no, I have, I have. You know, that thing you see me doing at the computer. And, and they said, what, playing solitaire? And I was like, <laughs> the other thing. Um, so, yes, it was, a, it was a bit of a shock. But they've, you know, we've all been there as a family and they've loved it. And, uh, yeah, it's been fantastic. I still think they would like me to get a proper job. But <laughs> um, Now, you hung out with another family when you were in America and that was the Obamas. <laughs> yes, that was extraordinary. We, because of writing for Veep, which was, as I say, the sort of fictional president and vice president, we, we did a little sketch for the correspondence dinner when Obama was president. So Julie Louis-Dreyfus, who played the fictional vice president, and I went to the White House and met the then vice president, Joe Biden. And the sort of idea was that while everyone's at the correspondence dinner, the only person who's not allowed to go is the vice president for security reasons. So we had this idea that the that Joe Biden and Julia would sort of have a kind of Ferris Bueller's Day Off sort of adventure together while no one was looking so we got to be in the White House and that was just incredible. It, it was terrifying because people kept rushing up to us saying, it's so true to life, Veep, so true to life. And you think, no, I want it to be a terrible <laughs> exaggeration. But yeah, meeting Michelle was was amazing. She was very funny, perfect comic timing. And uh, yeah, the whole thing was like a sort of cheese dream or something. I couldn't quite believe Fantastic. it was happening. Yeah. Then we come to Succession, which, I mean, has been such a huge hit. I have to confess I am an enormous fan. <laughs> and particularly of Roman, yeah. I just think that character is 
pure genius, the way he started off and the way that the last series ended. Yeah. And as you say, a budgie who's fallen from the nest. And suddenly <laughs> this really objectionable, kind of larger-than-life person is so vulnerable and so real. Tell us about writing that, and particularly that character. Yeah, I mean, I'd worked with Jesse Armstrong before, and so when he asked me to write on this, I was very excited to work with him again. But there was part of me that thought, I don't know if I want to write about a bunch of sort of white, straight, rich men who are poisoning our world. But actually, it's been really exciting and challenging, you know, to sort of dig deep into their characters and and sort of understand them and find the humanity. And as you say, in the first few episodes, I think you just think, oh, these people are so awful. But but now I think we're all falling in love with them a bit, which (laughs) might not be such a good thing. But, yeah, it's been fantastic. And it was so interesting because... At the beginning, the sort of core group of of the writers on Succession were British, sort of scruffy, shambolic comedy writers. And there was some sort of doubt felt in some quarters about whether we could pull off a sort of glossy, high-end American drama. And in some ways we couldn't, because (laughs) after we sort of wrote the scripts for the first season, they had to employ a rich consultant because we had no idea what it was like to be rich. And so I remember being given a very hard time about... I'd written an episode in the first season about Thanksgiving, and the rich consultant had sort of said to me, you know, this is all completely wrong. You know, rich people don't have coats. They go from their car to their jet to their building. Their shoes are only ever on carpet. And because it was Thanksgiving, I had Marsha sort of saying, oh, it's lunchtime, I've made turkey or something. And he was like, oh, my God, Marsha wouldn't know where the kitchen was. She wouldn't deign to say <laughs> the word turkey. You know, you've got to rewrite this. So I rewrote it and thought, right, what's the poshest thing I can think of? So I sort of put maids in maids' uniforms are dishing out the turkey. And then he was like, where on earth did you get this idea? And I said, I don't know, maybe porn or racist Tom and Jerry episodes? I don't know. He said, you don't have maids in maids. Well, you have attractive young men in chinos and polo shirts. Anyway, you know, for us, just having our pret sandwiches bought for us was as close as we'd come to being rich. But having said that... We didn't expect anyone to watch. I don't think anyone did watch the first season, to be honest, but it seems to have sort of caught on. And I agree. I mean, secretly, Roman is my favourite character, the filthy little pixie. <laughs> and I think it's because, as you say, he seems like the worst kind of... I don't know if I can say dick, but <laughs> but now I feel he's the one that really loves people, isn't he? He really loves his dad. He really loves his siblings. He loves Jerry. Whether or not that's healthy is to be debated. And you can just see the damage. And I feel so fond of him as a as a character. And, um, yeah, we've literally just finished in the writer's room writing season four. So Hurrah! <laughs> we start filming in June. And, um, yeah, it's so different now. Now that we know people are watching, <laughs> it's quite a pressure and, you know, we want to make sure people feel we're we're doing these beloved characters justice. Now, you've done so much else. I mean, you've been the showrunner for The Shrink Next Door. Again, another fantastic film. And you've also, it seems, 
come to terms with yourself a, a, a little more. And I wondered finally if the writing of this book has changed you and also how those closest to you have received it. That's a great question. Well, I think the writing has helped me for sure. I think in a strange way, treating myself like one of my characters, I've been able to find a bit of compassion for myself. Not not as much as I feel for Roman, but that's helped. And I think... I've come to accept, you know, in the book, I sort of depict my various sort of anxieties as kind of Godzilla stomping on my inner Tokyo and, uh, you know, an alien and a, a dark overlord beaver chewing on my intestines. And I think in a funny way, sort of giving them those sort of characters helps me kind of manage them. I know that they're not here at the moment, thank goodness, but I know they'll be back for a few more scenes and that helps and as far as how people have reacted that it's funny because when the book was about to come out I kind of thought oh my goodness you know people who've known me all my life aren't going to know 80% of what's in here you know what am my family going to say about this it's so personal and of course what's happened is We've never talked about it. <laughs> so it's worked out perfectly. I've no idea. <laughs> we just pretend it's never happened. <laughs> uh, My Mess is a Bit of a Life is by Georgia Pritchard. It's published uh, in paperback by Faber and it's completely fabulous. Georgia, thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. You've been listening to Meet the Writers. Thanks also to the production team of Nora Hall and Lillian Fawcett. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or app from SoundCloud, Mixcloud or iTunes. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.